why haven't we seen a more aggressive stance from the OEMs? I don't know. <laughs> this is my answer. <laughs> if, if I was Volkswagen or Ford or General Motors, I'd be panicking. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel and thanks for checking in. Before we launch into the interview, we'd like to thank all our Patreon sponsors. And for those of you who are new, share a bit about us. RK Equity is an advisory firm run by Rodney Hooper and me, Howard Klein. We are exclusively focused on raising awareness about companies producing or developing the next generation critical raw materials that are powering Tesla's EV battery energy transition. Please register your email at rkequity.com and follow Rodney and me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please also subscribe to this channel, Rockstock Channel on YouTube, as well as Lithium Ion Rocks on SoundCloud for our podcasts. Please note, Rodney and me are not financial advisors or broker dealers. Nothing you hear in this video is investment advice. Please do your own research and read the disclaimer at the end of this video or on our website. Thanks again for the support and let's get into the video. Welcome to Rockstock Channel. It is uh, September 1st. Uh, we're getting prepared to go back to school in America um, and end our summer here. But it's winter in uh, Sydney, and we are very privileged to have Reg Spencer of Canaccord Genuity, one of the leading analysts from perhaps you know the leading investment bank and broker and capital raiser to almost all lithium financings over the last you know 10 years um we interviewed you last uh, reg uh, about two years ago uh, right after the fast market santiago conference um when uh you know the 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 tenor was uh the sounds of silence from paul simon you know hello darkness my old friend <laughs> so it's a bit uh, different uh, narrative today uh and you just came out with a, an aggressively positive note every six months you're publishing um you know updates you called the bottom uh, this time last year you, you were increasingly bullish in february and now uh taking a page from tesla's plaid you're talking about a, a plaid acceleration in uh you know the lithium market so i have a bunch of slides which will um uh you know put on the screen as you're as you're talking but why don't you just uh, lay out a bit your your thesis um and uh and just your background i mean you're the head of metals and mining just a, a bit of uh canaccords franchise you know in lithium and, and your team members I've been at Canaccord for you know, 12 years now, uh, currently the head of the, the mining research team and between Australia, the United Kingdom and, and Canada, we have about 15 or 16 publishing analysts uh, covering everything from precious metals base, um, uranium and specialty minerals and metals. And, and as you point out, one of the key areas of focus for us more recently has been um, lithium and to a broader extent, battery materials. Um, we, we consider ourselves to be quite dynamic um, you know, we, we like to think that we have a, a pulse of the market and we watch what's happening in, and uh, we've had been covering Oracobre for many a year. Uh, and uh, in, in covering that company, you know, forced us into you know, looking more deeply at what was going on in lithium. And, and that uh, got us a little bit excited about the outlook for it. And, and that's really what um, caused our, or drove our entry in, into, in, into coverage of that particular sector. Um, so I've been covering the sector now for six years, six or seven years. Um, more recently, as you point out, um, what we said in September last year was that it couldn't get any worse. You had companies that were selling product for prices below the marginal cost of production. You had a, a cumulative 450,000 tonnes of 
probable or potential new capacity that had been deferred, cancelled or delayed. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, those kinds of things are, are classic bottom of the cycle signals. So um, notwithstanding that, we also knew that Elon was coming out the following week uh, with his battery days. So we knew he was going to say something controversial or exciting. Um, so it wasn't completely by accident or by design. Uh, but I think what's surprised us most in the last 12 months is the violence uh, of the re-rate. Um, if you go back to what we said in September, we said, you know, things are starting to look better. EV sales figures are starting to pick up. Um, you know, by the end of 2021 into 2022, we might start to see some improved market conditions and higher pricing. Well, you know, that kind of all happened <laughs> within five or six months. And then, then by February of this year, um, it was pretty evident that there was a major recovery taking place. On the demand side, you saw a 50% year-on-year increase in EV sales in 2020. Um, and then those two years of, of down cycle uh, through 19 and 20 actually sowed the seeds of, of what we're seeing uh, in terms of the constraints on supply today. And that's why we're seeing pricing respond in, in, in the fashion that it is. Uh, look, a lot of those tighter markets were driven by um, some uh, M&A activity. Um, you know, obviously, Pilbara and Altura were, were a big cause of uh, what's happened in the in the spodumene market and, and likewise albemarle and minrez um, but uh, what we see today is is a market that's a significantly tighter and and it's becoming more obvious that the supply side does look like it's going to struggle to maintain pace with with uh, demand and uh, that really supports our bullish long-term view that's one of the things i noticed in um, what you were saying is that you 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 see it a potential surplus of capacity of hydroxide conversion in china the shortage of spodumene is not because there's a shortage of spodumene, but it's because it's tied up, you know, in disciplined, integrated, you know, projects. The way we look at the spodumene market is is a little different than the way others might look at it. You know, we don't see a spodumene market. We see a, a, a what we call a, an integrated market where you've got some very large deposits uh, that are owned by some very well capitalized companies that plan to feed the concentrate produced from those mines into their own integrated converters. Um, and then on the flip side, you have your, what we call independent. So we have a merchant converter fleet in China who will buy concentrate from a number of independent concentrate producers. Uh, or, or today, all of them are located in Australia. Now, when you bundle all that up together, you have a global spodumene supply and demand model. Um, and prima facie on face value, it might look like that the spodumene market is in balance or even in surplus. Uh, and the way we look at that is, is looking at overall spodumene production versus effective uh, converter capacity. But when you split out the fact that a lot of these bigger integrated companies are unlikely to ever sell spodumene into the market, and Albemarle have said themselves, you know, we won't switch Wajina on until we have our own Chinese converters to put it into. Um, you look at, then at the spodumene being produced by the independent producers versus the demand from those independent converters. And that is where we see the big deficit. And that is where you see it manifesting itself in pricing now, which is, you know, about $1,000 a tonne. So that, you know, the time we've spent to try to understand the dynamics of the market, I, I, I believe is, is why uh, we've come to the conclusions that we have. But in the longer term, um, it, it, it is naive to think that high pricing doesn't elicit a supply response in any commodity market. And where I differ from other analysts that, that look at this sector is that 
Well, certainly, I, I don't disagree that, that the lithium market um, displays you know, characteristics more akin to specialty chemicals. But it also displays many characteristics that make it like a, a normal commodity. And, and so in an undersupplied market, for an example, uh, I don't believe you're going to see much of a, a disparity or, or, a, or a delta between uh, demand for battery grade and, say, non-battery grade. Uh, in an undersupplied market, the, the pricing incentive is there to take that tonne of technical grade product and refine it or upgrade into battery grade. And the best example I can use of that is Oracobre, you know, it's 2017. We know that they had struggled to produce battery spec material and they were selling product in that particular market at one point for $18,000 a tonne. China spot versus uh, contracted pricing, there's still a big differential and we're not seeing the cash flows come through to the incumbents yet. Now those will be reset. So unless you know i guess shareholders or external investors take the view you know build it and they will come or, or which way around you do it someone needs to take responsibility for that investment and at the moment the cash flows aren't quite there so whose responsibility is that in your opinion well it has to be the people that need the material the most uh, at the end of the day and and i i think you know, we'd all agree on this on this point. If it's the auto OEMs that are in most need of significant increases in supply, uh, it, it, we we need to really start seeing those guys write checks and start to invest further upstream than what they have in order to uh, in in order to to foster that that additional capacity. Uh, you know, while the equity market more recently and and capital markets more recently have shown a, a willingness to invest in new projects, it, it still pales into insignificance that the quantum that's required over the, dec the next decade uh, in, in order for supply to, to meet demand. So we're going to need to see either your, your OEMs uh, come to the party or the involvement of your larger, very well capitalised, diversified mining companies like your BHPs, your Rios, you know, your Fortescues, for example, um, come to the party and, and, and help bring that supply on in the long term. Otherwise, uh, and, and this is something that I see as the biggest risk to our investment case is not so much an, an oversupply, but an undersupply. Because of the way that we look at the market now, there's not going to be enough lithium, which means that you can't make the batteries, which means you can't sell the EVs. So while we model a 40% EV penetration rate in 2030, you know, the, 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 the way it looks today is it's going to get nowhere near that. Do we run a risk, aside from the chip shortage that could high lithium prices and other battery metal prices put a kibosh on the dropping average cost per kilowatt hour and then extending on that you know ev penetration we, we've done a lot of work trying to understand the the dynamics of, of the raw material markets relative to the cost of the batteries and and what it means for the oems and and how that affects their ability to to, to make a profit um it, it's it's very interesting uh and and to see that we are seeing some regionalization is probably where I'm going with this. Um, you're seeing more of the stick approach in places like Europe uh, that compares to the more of the carrot approach that we saw in China um, a couple of years ago with their very generous subsidies. Um, and then the United States is kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, I don't think that your, your major European OEMs are going to have a choice if, if the if the, if the EU is going to comply with their Paris uh, Accord obligations, um, you've got carbon adjustment border mechanisms coming into Europe over the next few years. 
which is just going to make things more difficult for the OEM. So I, I, I think to answer your question, I think where we're pointing to is, is that the, the big companies and the car companies are going to have, they're not going to have much of a choice if, if they're going to achieve their targets. You know, one other uh, factor of the, this sector that, that stands out to me is, is the, the poor track record of the lithium industry and being able to deliver. Um, you know, I, uh, in our latest research, we, we laid out in, in a couple of charts and the average delay from when a new project was originally slated to come online to when it actually was for projects that are currently in production is almost two years. And then if you have a look at planned projects, the delay stretches from three to four years. So even if the capital was available today, the, the, the complexity and the technical difficulties of these projects do not lend themselves to immediate supply responses. So you have a, a confluence of factors, be it underinvestment, um, uh, high technical risk, uh, high capital intensity, uh, not an obvious willingness from uh, your, your better capitalised customers or end customers to want to invest in the upstream it kind of does create a little bit of a perfect storm for pricing. And, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of that play out at the moment. Um, we've got nothing immediate coming online. SQM's running as hard as it can. I, I made a forecast after the Q1 was higher than theirs for the year. Now they're matching my forecast because everyone wants everything they can get their hands on. And you're right, whatever quality, it doesn't matter. But we're August and we're already, SP Platts is already showing over $20,000 a ton for carbonate and hydroxide. So how high can this thing go? At the rate we're going before year end, where could we, I mean, we could see an eye-watering number. Yeah, well, it's, it's possible. And, and then we start to think about uh, analogies for that. And, and I think about rare earths in 2011. Um, if we see pricing go too crazy, um, it will lead to demand destruction or the risk of substitution. Um, the car companies will have no choice but to continue to produce ICEs and, and they are powerful groups with big employers in Europe and you know, the, the, the governments there may soften their stance a little bit or have to you know, take a step back on their aggressive emissions targets. Um, so super high pricing doesn't help anyone. Um, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and I will use rare earth as, as the prime example of that. Um, but uh, again, it would be naive to think that high pricing doesn't elicit a supply response. And, and at $1,000 a tonne for spodumene, there aren't many hard rock projects around the world that don't work at that level. Uh, and then also, if we have a look at, at projects that, that are capable of bringing on large uh, tonnes into the market, like Wajina, you have to kind of think if your album is geez, a thousand dollars a ton, that seems to be pretty has to be pretty attractive, whether or not we have our own conversion capacity to put it into. <laughs> Which was funny enough, the question I was going to ask is there is there something that can trigger this? Because at those prices, it is it's you know it's hugely profitable. I mean, Chris Ellison must be champing at the bit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the biggest risk we see in the short term to to the spodumene price. Um, it is is Wajina. Uh, you know, it, it is a huge project, um, you know, 750,000 tonnes of capacity, trains one and two are ready to go. Uh, and, and so yeah, we often sit there any day and wonder, you know, will Albemarle switch it on? What does present a risk? Um, there doesn't look to be any other major sources of spodumene um, on the horizon that could come into the market in the near term um, to take some pressure off. 
And uh, as you as you mentioned, Rodney, um, as much as Albemarle have the best assets in the world and think strategically and over the long term, they also have shareholders and they also have um, you know earnings targets and 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 uh, the, the 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 prospect of being able to generate a margin of seven hundred dollars a ton on spodumene, you know, has to be pretty attractive. You'd like to think so, um, but. On the flip side, uh, Australia is a very difficult place to be operating at the moment with respect to the mining industry. We have closed borders, we have significant labour availability issues, um, we have cost inflation, we have capital cost inflation. Um, if Albemarle decided to turn on Wadjina tomorrow, it's not that apparent where they're going to find 300 people to operate that mine. Another example is the fact that Albemarle have pushed back their timeline on Kemerton, you know, because they can't get the people. So, um, yeah, while we are cautious around the, the, the potential for a supply response because pricing is, is doing what it's doing, there are a number of reasons why an immediate supply response may not be forthcoming. And, and so that's why we're quite comfortable in, in terms of our, our medium-term view on, on the tightness of the market. Why do you think it's taking so long for Albemarle to buy conversion in China? Uh, because all the good ones are owned by other people. <laughs> um, it, it, the, the converter fleet in China, if we go back, and, and it's, it's only, you know, not so long ago, there was three or four modern uh, facilities that were able to operate on a continuous basis that had higher rates of utilisation. And a, a lot of the other uh, facilities in China were, were run by poorly capitalised companies that had low utilisation rates. Uh, and, that, and that situation has only just started to change where you've got now seeing the entrance of much larger, better capitalised companies. Uh, the IP has improved where um, these groups know how to operate these plants better. They have more consistent feed, so on and so forth. Um, but the reality is that China, uh, sorry, Albemarle, um, hasn't been able to buy one because there hasn't been one for sale. Uh, if you have a look at some of the, the new capacity coming online, from some of these uh, better operators in China, like a Yahua or a General Lithium or a Yibin Tianyi, um, they're not going to sell their converter capacity, uh, their converters to Albemarle. Um, so I think it's a case of if, if Albemarle want a facility that's going to be of sufficient quality, they're going to have to build it. <laughs> uh, they're not going to be able to buy it for a price that might be seen as, as reasonable. Um, and, and furthermore, you know, other Chinese groups which are integral in, into China's domestic EV market going to let go of some of the control that they have over their own supply chain. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that, that um, Albemarle are, are just going to be able to find one to buy. Um, but um, they may prove me wrong and, and, and time will tell. If they can't find it, maybe we do see Wajina selling Spodumane. Um uh, I think maybe only Albemarle knows the quest answer to that question. So longer term, you've got uh, Spodumin at seven fifty, um, and chemical prices around fifteen. You know, in my mind, I think seven fifty pretty much most Spodumin projects work. Are you are you expecting then to see quite a bit come online then, sort of in the medium longer term? Yeah, look, I think if anyone can tells you that they know what's going to happen in 2030 is uh, either lying or, or doesn't know what they're talking about. Well, they've um, got nine years to be right. Yeah. It, so. um, look, you know, I've been I've been a mining analyst for 15 years, and and geez, I, I think a, a forecast anything further than 12 months out is fraught with 
danger and difficulty. Um, <laughs> just go back to what we said 12 months ago. <laughs> um, uh, look, we, we take a, a relatively conservative view to our long-term pricing assumptions. You know, the reality is, if you have a look at our supply demand curves, we're forecasting a million tonne LCE deficit by 2030. If, if that plays out, pricing is not going to be $15,000 a tonne. We know that. Um, that long-term pricing is, is really uh, an assumption that we use uh, on the basis, you know, what, what price would you need to deliver a, a sensible IRR for a Greenfield project? I think 15 is a great long-term price. I think rightly or wrongly, people will plow money into the business if they think they can get that as their sell price. Well, it's become a little bit more apparent um, in the last few months. And um, the, the, the guys at Pilbara have, have done a good job in explaining this, is, is that because the power in the market has now shifted back to the producer um, and the seller, uh, there is the ability for, for the, 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 the concentrate producers to capture more of that margin. That, that $750, if you've got a $15,000 a tonne long-term pricing and if the market's in deficit and you've got a, a large independent converter fleet that's undersupplied, um, they're going to have no choice but to pay more than $750 a tonne, just like you're seeing in the market today. So, you know, one of the, uh, the, the conclusions that we came to in our most recent research was that, you know, whereas we previously saw deficits emerging in 23-24, you know, the, the, there's been a significant change in the, in the dynamics of the market such that those deficits are in the market today. Um, but because we're starting to see that manifest itself in pricing today, that's going to bring forward some supply that we had pushed out to the late 2020. I think if you think the market stays tight and demand stays strong uh, and prices stay up here, then there will be some supply come to the market. In your research, you're using like $15,000 capital intensity per ton as a typical um, you know, metric, but that, that seems low from a, a non-China perspective. The, the capital intensity of Mount Holland um, is a reflection of the current market in Australia uh, uh, and, and just the, the, the higher costs associated with building a project in Australia. A lot of new supply that's likely to come into the market over the next 10 years are going to be brownfield expansions, which typically carry a, a significantly lower capital intensity uh, than, than a greenfield project. Um, have a look at how much SQM is spending on taking capacity in the Atacama from you know, 80,000 to 120 up to 180. Um, it's certainly not $30,000 a tonne or even $20,000 a tonne. Uh, and, and similarly, if you have a look at the incremental capacity a Pilbara is able to bring into the market or uh, CGP2 or CGP3 at Greenbushes, you know, the capital intensity of, of those brownfield expansions are, are relatively low. Uh, but the trends that we have seen um, over the, since we last you know, did that exercise is that capital intensities are going up. Uh, you know, the, the average capital intensity of a brine project uh, a greenfield brine project was about fifteen thousand dollars a ton last time we did the work. It's now twenty, um, and for a integrated hard rock uh, lithium hydroxide project, for example, the average was about twenty thousand dollars. It's now something closer to thirty. Uh, you know, to answer your question, I, I think we have to be cognizant of the ability for uh, brownfield expansions of, of incumbent and existing production. Uh, but also new projects and new supply is getting more expensive to build. Um, so that's kind of why we're somewhere in, a little, in, in the middle a little bit with our average capital intensity calculations. Outside of Western Australia and hard rock going into China, how do you view the, you know, the, the European and, and, and North American scene? 
at the end of the day, we're going to need every single ton of lithium chemical supply that we can get our hands on if, if, if supply is going to meet demand over the long term. And, and frankly, uh, to, to solve that conundrum about long-term or perpetual deficits, as some have called it, um, you, you're going to, the industry is going to need a step change uh, or a leap in, in new processing technology in order to bring on uh, large volumes at relatively low capital costs. Um, now, that's as it stands today, technologies don't necessarily lend themselves to that, but we are seeing some certainly some advancements and, as you call them, unconventional projects sort of coming to the fore. Um, but if we have a look at then at, at projects that are, 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 are conventional projects and, and the issues that they've had, um, I, I think one would be naive to think that, you know, every new project looking at a novel process or uh, a new technology would come on and come online at a, on a shorter period of time. Um, the reality is over the near term, um, it will be conventional projects, it will be your brines, it will be your hard rocks that are going to do the heavy lifting with respect to delivering new supply. But in the back half of this decade is, is hopefully when we start to see um, some of these newer forms of pr production, hopefully, and I'm going to say hopefully, come to the fore uh, because we will need them. Um, you know, whether they're clays uh, like you've got in Nevada or whether they're uh, geothermal brines like you've got in Germany or even California, or you know the, the employment or adoption of direct lithium extraction on on lower quality or, or lower grade brines in South America. One of the, the jurisdictions where they seem keen on mining and they pro it and supportive and it could help out there is Canada with the spodumen. It's clean energy. The the Quebec government and Canadian government is very pro. Um, your thoughts on that? I, I, I'm quite excited about uh, Canada, uh, Canadian lithium, I should say. Um, we know that there is a lot of scar tissue attached to Canadian lithium projects, uh, you know, Namaskar and before that NAL. Uh, but uh, it, it is going to play a very important role in, in helping uh, supply North America's needs. And, and for those very reasons you said, you have access to a skilled workforce, um, it is a mining country by definition. Uh, you have cheap, low cost, uh, low carbon uh, energy sources, especially in Quebec. And, and those are the kind of characteristics that, that uh, make it almost a perfect jurisdiction or destination um, to be looking at a new project. And it just so happens Quebec has a bunch of undeveloped projects that are now starting to come to the fore. Um, you've got Live End and Pallingshurst, obviously, there that have now got their hands on the old Namaskar assets. You've got Sayona and, and Piedmont that have now got their hands on the old NAL. You've got Oracobra at James Bay. Uh, then you've got a raft of other smaller groups that are looking at, at, at developing or, or, or defining uh, new resources in Quebec. So um, while I see uh, projects in North America as not necessarily being easy to get through the permitting process, um, this is where places like Canada can, can fill, the, fill the breach a little bit. Uh, it, it, the acquisition of the NAL assets by Sayona and Piedmont, it, it's, it's quite a unique situation. Um, we, 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 everyone's quite familiar as to why NAL failed in the first place, and, and it's got a lot to do with geology and mineralogy. Um, uh, but the ability for another company to come along with a, with a resource that's proximal uh, to help uh, offset those uh, Metallurgical challenge that is presented by the, you know, the the actual original NAL resource, 
that's quite unique and that actually placed them in, in, in the best spot to be able to make that project work. And I, I quite like what those guys are doing up there with, with the help of Piedmont. The reality is that project is actually the most advanced hard rock project in North America. Um, subject to a little bit of capital spent on the plan, it's fully permitted, it's ready to go. Uh, whereas a lot of the other projects, say, you know, INEAR or Thacker Pass or, or some of the other clays in Nevada, um, you know, it's still only at DFS stage and it's got to yet to go through construction and financing. So um, those guys have, have done very well and, and um, I, uh, I, I quite like what they're doing there. But, you know, Africa, uh, we didn't have, haven't really talked about yet. Um, this is a, another frontier uh, uh, where I think you're going to start to see come to the fore. Um, you know, Gulamina is a high quality asset, uh, which... The, the market only really recognised once Ganfeng came and, and, and gave it the tick of approval through their investment. Um, you've got a huge deposit in the in the middle of the DRC called uh, Monono, um, you know, that that uh, may or may be developed in, in the near term as well. And then you've got other interesting prospects uh, like Arcadia with, with prospects. Um, so look, Africa is certainly going to play its role. Um, while it, it suffers from the tyranny of distance with respect to these hard rock projects to where all the world's conversion capacity is today. I think what you'll start to see over the next few years um, is the emergence of, of, of a merchant converter fleet located in Europe. We already know of at least three facilities that are being planned. Um, uh, and, and that is the natural home for spodumene being produced in Western Australia or, uh, sorry, West Africa or, or, or Southern Africa, um, just, just by virtue of its proximity. Um, and so that might you know, help Europe goes some way to helping secure some of its its, its requirements, um, uh, but as it stands today, uh, you know that that's at least a few years away, given where those projects are in their stages of development. We just had a uh, interview with Garrett Fueling, and we talked about that a bit. And it's a it's a bit of a problem, though. Uh, what do you do with all the waste if you don't have a mine to put it back into? Um, so it's a bit of a problem on the on the hard rock merchant converter. Although, uh, do you have any view on this Metsu Odutech, um, you know, process that's different from what's used in China and what's used in Western Australia as a means, you know, to, Piedmont's using it, Caliber's using it, um, Critical Elements, uh, Holmec, um, any view on, on that? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and one thing we haven't talked about uh, so far is, is the emerging role that that sustainability is going to have on the whole supply chain. Um, uh, the carbon intensity of lithium production is very much front of mind for the end users, um, as is the rest of their supply chain. So if you're a Volkswagen or a, or a Daimler or a BMW, um, you know, and, and you're buying lithium chemicals out of China that have been produced from spodumene in Australia, you know, then shipped halfway around the world, you know, is, is, is that, the most sustainable supply chain you can have. And, and so this is where we see some regionalization of lithium chemical supply uh, in order to reduce the carbon intensity of, of, of the chemicals and, and uh, the products that the OEMs are looking to produce at the end of the day. Um, but with respect to the metso Udatech process, um, uh, look, at, 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 from what we've seen and from by reports, it, it looks like it, it addresses some of those issues. It, it, it's novel. Uh, which means it does carry risks. It's yet to be commercialised at any real scale. Um, but uh, the ability to um, 
uh, reduce your your footprint, reduce your reagent consumption, reduce your energy costs. Uh, you know, all of those things contribute to lowering uh, the footprint of a project and the supply chains. And you talk about sustainability. I mean, Tesla is they just put out their sustainability report. They're the forefront of sustainability. On the other hand, you have GM, Stellantis, Renault have recently kind of like announced MOUs, not a lot of money, you know, attached to it, but to the, you mentioned the salt and sea geothermal, um, you know, and, and also, you know, in Germany, what do you make of the preference of non-Tesla, right? Uh, uh, OEMs, you know, going into unconventional, um, you know, projects as their lithium solution without really, um, you know, providing much money, uh, you know, in GM's case, they said, you know, we, we hope to visit, you know, the Salton Sea, you know, once, you know, COVID allows. I don't for one second believe that that, that these uh, arrangements that the downstream are, are striking with, with some of these companies are, are there solutions for supply. The, the way I look at it is that um, in the not too distant future, uh, long-term security of supply or access to the raw materials is going to become an issue. And so for a Stellantis or a General Motors or an LG Chem, uh, any of these groups striking uh, off-take arrangements today basically puts their foot on that supply um, over the next 5, 10, 15 or, or however many years. That, you know, if the project does get up and running uh, in, in that space of time, then great. Um, but if it doesn't or it takes longer, at least they've still got the optionality of that supply. Uh, so I, I think um, uh, those companies are looking at, at, at things like the geothermals um, or, or, or other unconventional projects uh, are looking at them as, as, as helping tick that sustainability box. Um, it's, it's helping them achieve their local uh, raw material supply requirements. Um, but it's, it's giving them optionality as much as anything else. Um, but I, you know, at the same time, I also think it, it, it's a, it's a ticket credibility for, you know, the projects that these companies are working on. Yeah. It was funny right after the Vulcan LG announcement was made, I, I looked back, you know, five years ago and saw a virtually identical agreement LG chem made with Namaska. Um, <laughs> so, uh, no money attached, you know, promise and optionality, uh, but lending credibility, you know, in, in the hopes that they'll otherwise kind of, you know, get, get financed, but they, they're not binding commitments. They're, they're, they're much more, you know, I see a big difference between those and, um, you know, and, and the deal that, that Tesla struck with, with Piedmont, which was, it wasn't for hydro hydroxide or chemicals. It was part of a a defined strategy by an OEM, the first to actually get into the lithium processing, lithium chemicals business. Why haven't we seen GM and Volkswagen, et cetera, take those more aggressive steps to get into the business? And, you know, in, in Tesla's case, they're financing chemical conversion, right? Just they are getting into the business. And they knew that they needed to lock in some spodge mean offtake, and they picked, you know, the, the one that was in America, you know, and it was closest to them. So from their localization and reducing the, the kilograms per kilometer traveled, um, you know, to that point. And their chairman, uh, you know, keeps saying that, you know, you don't want to ship these things, you know, 9,000 miles, you know, uh, around the world. But, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, GM owned iron mines or Ford owned iron mines. They owned rubber plantations, 
Um, but here they are, you know, it seems virtue signaling, you know, you said checking the sustainability box by, um, you know, not putting money, uh, but, you know, lending their brand, right, to, you know, an unconventional process, like where, like, why aren't they, you know, financing or aggressively, you know, why might not they not partner with, you know, Livent and, and, and Palinghurst, right, or, or a Cobre, you know, or any of the other Canadian projects that we're, that we're talking about. Why haven't we seen a more aggressive stance from the OEMs? I don't know. <laughs> it's my answer. <laughs> if I was Volkswagen or Ford or General Motors, I'd be panicking um, uh, today. I'd be looking at the well, just in the Western uh, OEMs, uh, you know, in excess of $250 billion of uh, investment announced in, into electrification over the next 10 years and, and uh, yet $0 committed to securing upstream raw material supply. Um, there, there's quite a big gap that needs to be filled there. Um, uh, but then when you think about, you know, those estimates when we talked about capital intensity and before and how much capital we think is, is required in order for supply to meet, uh, you know, demand in, 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 in 10 years time, you know, $35 billion out of 250 or, or 300 is actually doesn't seem like that much. So I, I think now um, that the OEMs have, have, have decided upon their strategies towards electrification, uh, they've, they've earmarked what their requirements are for their battery capacity, they've decided where they're going to build, they've decided what they're going to build, they've decided what they're going to put in the batteries. I think going forward, we, we may start to see them be a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more forthright in, in moving upstream. Uh, and and um, especially after the likes of Tesla's battery day and Volkswagen's power day and Stellantis's day that they had as well, you know, they've now laid out their, 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 their strategies and it's all about backfilling that now, I think. So going forward, um, I expect to see some involvement of OEMs in, in the uh, upstream raw material supply chain. Um, um, when and who and, and uh, in what form, uh, I, I'd only be speculating, but it has to come sooner rather than later.